Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We have a lot to talk about on today's Political Rewind. Uh, Among other things, the special grand jury in Fulton County investigating efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election has finished its work, and we're going to watch to see what the next steps will be in the investigation that Fonnie Willis launched last May. Uh, The legislature is back in session. We'll talk about some of what's happening there and a lot more, but look. I mean, we have to start the show by talking about the astonishing performance of the Georgia Bulldogs in the national championship game last night. I've always acknowledged on this show that my sport of choice is soccer. But I've got to say, for two years, I have been like so many of you out there, just glued to watching the exceptional performance of this football team. I mean, if you're a soccer fan and you are mesmerized by Lionel Messi's ability on the pitch, you can't help but also uh, have the same feeling about Stetson Bennett. What a remarkable quarterback he is in terms of execution and all of the others who have made up that team. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the Bulldogs for a few minutes, uh, but let me introduce the panel first, and then we'll uh, get into some of the data around their victory, because one thing that politics and sports often has in common is data crunching, and we'll talk a little bit about the uh, numbers that Georgia ran up last night. Let's start with Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, it's so fortuitous that you are here on the day after Fonnie Willis's special grand jury has finished its work because you have been covering that closer than almost any other reporter in uh, in uh, Metro Atlanta. So thanks for being here today. Of course, Bill. It's always good to be here. Mary Margaret Oliver, representative uh, from uh, based in Decatur, is uh, back with us today. Uh, Mary Margaret. You watched the game on TV. I assume you didn't join so many of your colleagues uh, who went out to L.A. to be there in person, right? I very, very happily watched a terrific victory. You know, as a Vanderbilt graduate, I didn't start out as a Georgia fan, but I'm a total Georgia fan now. That young man, Stinson Bennett, just is amazing. Kendra King-Maman is the Associate Provost and uh, Professor of Political Science at Oglethorpe University. And Kendra, I I have to say I'm a little cautious with you this morning because I know you did your Ph.D. work at the Ohio State University. Ouch. Sorry, but what can you say now? (laughs) Listen, I'm representing red all day and uh, because I started my academic career at UGA, go dogs. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you for being here. And Eric Tannenblatt, who is a longtime Republican insider in Georgia. He's worked with everybody from uh, Paul Coverdale to Sonny Perdue. He was deeply involved when the Bush uh, family was running George H.W., George W., eventually Jeb Bush for president, um, and was very involved in the Mitt Romney campaign for president in twenty. 20- 12. Eric, were you up uh, late last night like most of us? I was, not only to watch what was an incredible game, but also just the celebration afterwards with the trophy and just watching everyone celebrating out there. It was a great day for Georgia. So here, here, I think it's always fun. Obviously, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution has dozens of pages devoted uh, to the victory, but I think it's kind of fun to look at outside of our market uh, news to see how they're reporting on it. Uh, Joe Vitale, who is the a sports writer for Yahoo, for instance, uh, wrote this paragraph in his coverage of the game. For anyone outside of the state of Georgia, this game was a snooze fest for Georgia fans. It was pure beauty. I mean, come on, a 58-point victory? Um, that's just one of the outside of Georgia uh, writers on this. So, let, let, All right, so um, tomorrow I'll start with you. Here's some data. 
the Bulldogs get, had 588 yards of offense in the game. They uh, set a record for uh, the most points ever scored in a title game. Previously, Nebraska had scored 62 points over Florida in 1995. Um, they've had 33 wins out of 34 games, and that's just the start of remarkable statistics. So, Tamar, give us your thoughts on this incredible victory, and let's give everybody a chance to do the same. Sure. I mean, an incredibly dominant performance from from UGA last night, and they've had an amazing run these last couple of years. So I'll be curious to see what's to come from um, Stetson Bennett now that he moves on and curious to see what we have left, um, you know, from these Bulldogs coming up next season. Um, Obviously, a lot to celebrate here in Georgia. Mary Margaret, I thought one of the things that was so fun um, was that your colleague, Houston Gaines, uh, who represents a portion of Athens, was actually in Los Angeles. And uh, the chief justice of the state Supreme Court, John Ellington, swore him in at SoFi Stadium with Governor <laughs> Kemp and Marty Kemp watching. <laughs> I noticed the board yesterday when we convened on the floor about who was excused. And there were a couple of athens Clark County people who had ease by their name as excused. It was a fun day. It was a fun game. I, I loved every part of it and look forward to next season already. Eric? Well, look, I, I, as I said before, I think it was a great day for Georgia. The timing was great with this. This is the week of the news, the start of the General Assembly, the inauguration of our governor and our state constitutional officers. You know, we, we've just finished, uh, you know, a few years where Georgia has been in the political spotlight. And it's nice to talk about something other than politics, uh, something very positive. And uh, I think it's great. I think everyone in Georgia today has a big smile on their face. You know, Kendra, it, it is basically a cliche to say, oh, well, we all come together around Georgia football. It happens to be uh, true, regardless of our political orientation. But I also think something Eric said is that's interesting is Georgia has been in the national spotlight politically now for a couple of years. And uh, the Bulldogs victory last night brings even more attention to the state. Absolutely. And perhaps it's a sign of where we're going to go in this legislative session uh, that we will uh, unite around those valence issues and and have a session where um, everyone feels like they can win. Um, so I, I think it could be serendipitous, um, but it was a great game. Um, I have to publicly apologize because I bet for the frogs. I thought the Lord would be on their side and clearly he wasn't. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I'm publicly apologizing to those who know. <laughs> Hypnotoad, Hypnotoad had no power over the bulldog. All right. Uh, just uh, to finish all that off, we, we are so happy. And as Eric Tannenblatt said, it's so nice to have something we can celebrate in a positive way today. Um, Tamar, let's move on to the news that the special grand jury has finished its work. We learned that yesterday because Fulton County Superior Court Judge Robert McBurney, who has overseen the uh, special grand jury, uh, announced that they had been dissolved and um, the question becomes, they've now issued a report, but it's going to be up to McBurney in a hearing in a couple of weeks to decide what first what happens with the special grand jury's report, right? Exactly. There's a question of whether it should be made public, how much of it should be made public. Does it need to be redacted? Does its release need to be delayed? And there are a lot of different interests at play here who I think will be making their case in front of McBurney. There's, of course, the DA's office, which I think has some strategizing that it, it needs to do. Uh, maybe it doesn't want the report public as it decides next steps, especially should DA Willis decide she does want to pursue indictments. I could see an argument that they want to buy themselves some breathing room to dot their I's and cross their T's without kind of the glaring national media spotlight on them. At the same time, maybe there's an argument to be made that say they agree with what the special grand jury recommends one way or another. Uh, it could be beneficial for them to release it and say, hey, we're just following the will of these 23 Fulton County residents. Um, I have a feeling they might be arguing for keeping it private, at least for now, but we'll see. We could also see a coalition of members of the media, including the AJC, arguing that they want it 
public because it's in the public interest. I'm also watching closely to see whether potential targets of the investigation, folks who, who think that they could potentially face criminal charges, if they might come out and try and stop or delay the issuance of this report, or at least try and get their portions of the report scrubbed or redacted before it's released. So all of that will come into play on the 24th. It's also very possible that we could see indictments before then. Um, anything is possible in, in this game, as I have learned. And now we wait. Um, as I was saying before the show, Bill, this might be the busiest year of my life covering uh, something like this, should the DA decide to pursue indictments and do it quickly, or it could be absolute crickets for a year. We might not hear anything for a really long time. Um, so I guess we'll have to wait and see. Uh, Mary Margaret, first of all, Mary Margaret, you sent me a note correcting me. Mike Boggs is the Chief Justice. Uh, Ellington is not. And Mike Boggs swore all of you in on the floor uh, of the of the body yesterday. So thank you for uh, making that correction. Mary Margaret, um, what do you think about how eager, uh, especially critics of Trump and his allies are to see the uh, results of this investigation released? Or do you think people are going to have the real patience uh, to watch the process play out? Oh, what's in their interest? Is patience in their interest or is uh, revealing the substance of the report in their interest? I, I sort of am trusting uh, Judge McBurney on this. Uh, transparency is always a value and there's going to be political drama, whatever they do. So transparency may be the better political choice for the institution of the DA, institution of the criminal justice system in Georgia. Um, but it, it's pretty unknowable at this point. I think that Fannie Willis in, uh, could could serve the public by just doing exactly what DAs do frequently, is to be transparent and put the facts that she de determined to be accurate through the grand jury investigative process before the public and let the public decide uh, in some form about whether or not the indictments are sought. It's going to be uh, confusing. It's going to be politically charged. But the, the conservative view is to be transparent and just move forward and let the grand jury hearing for the indictments decide and let ultimately perhaps a jury of the of the peers of Fulton County decide. Kendra? Yeah, I agree with what um, has already been said. I, I think it uh, behooves the, the DA to make this as apolitical as possible. Um, from the start of this, there, there's there's been a lot of political discourse on this. And so I think if um, she allows the judicial process to play its course. Um, at the end of the day, I think it could um, lessen any uh, threats. Um, as we know, we came out of this last electoral season there, where there are a lot of you know threats of violence against those running, and we don't know what um, dragging this out or being fast um, to move on this could incite um, in those who are in support or against this. So I, I hope that political expediency and wisdom um, is what leads um, this next round of processing. Yeah, the only thing that I would add, yeah, the only thing that I would add, Bill, is, is um, you know, where there's a there's a clock in terms of the next political season. And, you know, President Trump's already an announced candidate. Uh, there's not a whole lot of attention uh, being placed on the upcoming presidential race, but that's going to change. And, you know, once we get past first quarter of this year, I think you'll probably see other candidates get in the race. You'll in a primary, uh, you'll see president Biden, uh, make his announcement for reelection if, if that's what he chooses to do. So I think the first quarter is going to be an important quarter. And I, I would have to believe that, um, that is going to weigh in. Yeah, there's a lot of political dynamics that are at play here. And I know the DA often talks about how she's trying as hard as she can to keep politics out of it, but it's impossible to ignore. As Eric said, uh, Donald Trump is on the ballot. So is Fonnie Willis. She's up for re-election in 2024. And that has to be something that, that we all remember throughout all of this. The legislative session is going on. And guess who a former target is? Uh, LG elect Burt Jones. 
um, who also controls budgets. And if you're a DA, you know, you, you don't want to anger anyone during legislative session. Um, you also have statutes of limitations that you have to worry about when you're prosecutors um, that, that are a couple years long. And a lot of this stuff happened in late 2020, early 2021. So you also have to be mindful of that clock, especially when we know Donald Trump, if you bring him into a courtroom, he's going to do everything he can to try and delay or drag out proceedings. So there's a lot of kind of practical considerations that the DA has to consider um, as a part of this. Well, a couple of points I'd like to uh, bring up and, and have you expand upon and then uh, let other people weigh in tomorrow. First of all, uh, so McMur McBurney has a hearing on January, the January 24th to hear arguments on whether this material should be released or not. Once he rules, um, there's nothing that stops an appeal from being made right away to go up to the next court. So uh, we we might expect there's going to be some delay. Let's say he rules, yes, it should be released. An appeal could very likely stop the immediate release of the material, right? <clears throat> sure. And um, there, there could be fights over redactions, too, even if, yeah. if he does want to get it released, kind of what gets to see the light of day publicly. And there is a um, a 60-year-old law in Georgia that makes it illegal to impugn the character of a public official without an indictment. And so that could be a complicating factor in all of this. And it's what led to a really long delay in 2012. There was another special grand jury in DeKalb County that was looking into uh, corruption allegations in, with the watershed department. And it ended up implicating uh, CEO Burl Ellis. And because of, of the grand jury's language with him, it, it helps kind of stretch all of this out. And actually, the foreman of the grand jury ended up suing the judge overseeing the panel because he said it was taking too long for the report to be released. So there is precedent for lots of legal fighting over um, when this stuff gets released. And depending on how um, kind of the tack that the grand jury took in its language, um, there could be fighting around that. My hunch is that McBurney would not have approved this report and dissolved the grand jury if he was worried that that, that was a real factor. Um, but it is something to be mindful of. Okay, so one other quick point here. Help, help us understand. We've seen this special grand jury was impaneled last May. And we've known all along that the special grand jury does not have uh, the ability to bring a true bill. Uh, their investigation has now concluded with a report, which is what we knew all along uh, they would make, and with a, rec a possible recommendation on whether to uh, whether criminal charges should be brought against any of the people who have been implicated in this. But now it has to go to a regular grand jury. I don't understand that double layer, and I think maybe some of our listeners may not either. Sure. And and the final decision is ultimately up to D.A. Willis if she decides to use to, to bring anything that was uncovered as part of this investigation to present it in front of a regular grand jury to seek um, to seek charges. But the, the grand jury helps her helps the D.A. say she does want to pursue um, indictments. It helps her for a couple of reasons. The first is it helps her. It, first of all, it, it helps issue subpoenas. You know, she was able to get reluctant witnesses to come forward and talk. Um, it helped her uncover a bunch of evidence that maybe she wouldn't have gotten otherwise or it would have taken her longer to get. It also helps her sift through all these witnesses to see who's compelling, who gives good testimony, who um, is helpful for swaying grand jurors, who she might want to bring forward again in front of a regular grand jury or even in front of um, you know, a jury in a trial who could kind of help her case. We also think that should she want to pursue an indictment, this grand jury report could help form the backbone, form the backbone of an indictment, um, kind of give her a roadmap for, for doing so in front of a regular grand jury, if that makes sense. So it kind of cuts down on the workload for her. It also, as I said, perhaps most importantly, gives her political cover, um, especially if she chooses to agree with the grand jury. She can say, you know, I know I'm a Democrat. I know that I'm looking at exclusively Republicans, but 23 Grand jurors in Fulton County, teachers, bus drivers, nurses, um, back me up on this. I'm just following what they wanted to do. That is invaluable. I think Fannie Willis has done a very professional public job. 
I don't think she was free to ignore the evidence of the one-hour phone call from the president to Secretary of State Raffensperger. I don't think she was free to ignore uh, other very complicated legal issues and bad behaviors. If you, if you want to look at this purely from a political lens, if somebody were in charge of the politics of it, which I don't think that's where Fannie Willis are, how do you, how do you carry forward to continue what Mitch McConnell referred to as the diminishment, the diminishing uh, power of Trump? Is, when is the public or his base, or not so much this base, but sort of the people on the edge, more towards the middle of the Republican traditional voters, when are they really going to be fed up with this? How much longer are they going to tolerate uh, the attention on Trump? And Fannie Willis is just doing her job, marching down the road, now possibly towards presenting a real uh, real evidence that she's carefully uh, gathered to a real grand jury. That's the professional job of the DA. I think she's handling as well as she can, uh, given a very unusual set of circumstances. And I, it's not out of my mind either that she's also doing this colossal gang case that's going on month after month, that will go on month after month after month of a very complicated, perhaps more of interest to many of the Fulton County voters. Kendra, um, it's been said for quite a long time by national uh, media that uh, given the work that the uh, January 6th committee has done in the U.S. House, given the investigation launched by DOJ and now the special prosecutor looking at uh, Trump's uh, behavior, um, that uh, many people have said all along that it's here in Fulton County where the most serious criminal repercussions might be felt um, in term because of Fonnie Willis's investigation. And Kendra, and then, and then Eric, I think what makes that even more interesting right now is that we know that Kevin McCarthy's Republican uh, conference in the U.S. House is going to look at opportunities to undermine the work that DOJ has done in terms of pursuing Donald Trump and others of his allies uh, to see if they can't derail the investigations going on against Trump. So, Kendra, it, it strikes me it makes what happens in Fulton County potentially even more important. Absolutely. We are at the center of the nation right now. Um, all eyes are on Fulton County, and this will really determine um, next steps even for Trump as he has put his hat in this presidential bid. Um, I, I think at the end of the day, you know, Fannie Willis is an institutional player. She's she's called to pursue this um, because it's come to her doorsteps. And, and I, I do think that there are going to be some redactions um, in, in what's released because I, I, I do think that there's evidence um, um, strongly speculated evidence that there was some malfeasance that went on on um, that phone call being one of those things. So I think that um, how this plays out in Georgia will make a statement uh, for, for the national DOG investigation and then how McCarthy and others do try to derail. Eric, why don't you take a last shot at this before we have to get to a break? Well, as I said before, I think that this next quarter the next three months are going to be critical. Uh, and Tamar, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that D.A. Willis has to wait for January 24th, the ruling on that decision about the release, to take any action. And since, you know, Kevin McCarthy's name was brought up and what's happening in, in Washington with the House Republicans, we now have divided government nationally, and it's going to take the the new majority some time to you know get their sea legs. But they've already telegraphed what they're planning on doing from a investigation standpoint. So again, I think that we we have this short window as the new majority is getting organized and going after the things they're going to go after, um, and then we get into the political season for the 2024 presidential election. So I, I think we, we've got this three-month window right now where I think you're going to see um, some act activity, if there will be. Hey, tomorrow, sorry, Eric, tomorrow, respond to that before we take a break. Sure. Um, but as I mentioned, I mean, one dynamic to be mindful of is the legislature and prosecutors. And I know they're they're technically, you know, they're separate entities, but of course you have Governor Kemp now talking about 
efforts to rein in rogue prosecutors. Um, and there are budgetary implications here. So, so it is a dynamic to watch. Um, the DA has been banned from investigating Burt Jones, who served as a fake elector and is now our lieutenant governor-elect. Uh, but that's kind of hanging over the lieutenant governor's head as well. The Prosecuting Attorneys Council of Georgia has been put in charge of that. They, I believe, get some of their budget from the state legislature. So it's kind of messy. All these players that are involved that you know, they all have power over each other in certain ways. And they're all, you know, they have reason to also be fearful of one another. And so it'll be a very interesting dynamic to to stay in touch of. But I agree with Eric, these next couple of months are going to be very critical. And I'll be interested to see um, how much action there is, or if prosecutors choose to wait the legislative session out. Okay, uh, we will watch all, as all this unfolds. And Tamar Hallerman will certainly be on top of it. Of course, by the way, we should point out, Bert Jones is now the lieutenant governor, having been sworn in. He's taken his place as uh, president of the state Senate. Let's do this. Let's go to our first break of the show when we come back a lot more on today's Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Oglethorpe University's Kendra King uh, Maman, Eric Tannenblatt, Tamar Hallerman, and uh, Representative Mary Margaret Oliver join us for today's political rewind. Mary Margaret, you're uh, you've got the day off today from the session because uh, you all, I think, realized that it was smart to uh, give people a day's off because you have some of your members out there coming back from L.A. The rest of you were up late last night. You know, Mary Margaret, I know this seems like a minor matter for most of our listeners, and it, and in the long run, it may be. But yesterday, we spent a good amount of time on the show talking about this, all the new leaders in the House and Senate. We talked about 53 new freshman members in the class. Um, and so there were a lot of questions about how everybody was going to work together. And I think it's kind of interesting that on the first day of the session— we saw that Senate and House leaders, and I guess the governor had an involvement in this, agreed on the calendar for the entire session. That never happens, Mary Margaret. And there are some interesting things that that means, I think. Talk to us about that. It, it really is uh, unique and very significant to those of us that have to go to work down there. Uh, for For me to be able to really know when I'm free to like most of the General Assembly have other real jobs, when I'm free to schedule appointments with clients, when I'm free to negotiate with opposing counsels on who wants to do X or Y or Z on moving a case forward. On behalf of my clients, it is enormously helpful. Uh, spring break is a big issue for a lot of the young family, uh, young members of the General Assembly with young children. Being able to organize our family life and our business life is huge. John Burns was in charge of the calendar uh, on behalf of Speaker Ralston in the past year or two. And so I think he was close to knowing those issues um, are important to every day-to-day -day members of the General Assembly. And bringing in so many new people, again, most of whom, over half of whom have other real jobs like I do, it was, a, it was a courtesy to the new folks and reflection of a little bit of a of a change of of modern modern being more modern and being more realistic and courteous to the members. So Eric, I understand why it's a benefit to legislators like Mary Margaret Oliver, but I think in terms of, of those of us who observe the legislature, there's another significant aspect to this, and that is that leaders in the House and Senate over the decades have used the calendar to hold each other kind of hostage in terms of significant pieces of legislation, accelerating uh, the calendar, slowing things down as they change the, as they 
came up with the dates they were going to be in session and not be in session. And they've taken that off the table, which I think is pretty interesting, Eric. Yeah, and I think it's going to allow for planning. And uh, as Mary Margaret said, organization, she kept using the word organization. And I think that that's uh, really important. I, 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 you know, maybe I'm optimistic, but, you know, from all signs, it sounds like this is not going to be a very controversial session. I mean, there'll be issues that, you know, individual issues that will create some controversy. But I do think that uh, this is a session that everyone's going in uh with um you know legislative items that you know people can work together um and i think the schedule uh is sort of a reflection of sort of the mood and tenor that the leadership wants to convey about how they want this session to go kendra um not only do we have an enormous freshman class 53 new members of the house and senate we also have the most diverse legislature in georgia history in terms of people of color and of various descents. And, and that too really tells us something about the changing face of our state. Absolutely, it, this reminds me of when uh, Gwinnett County shifted over, right, um, right after the 1996 Olympics. Uh, Gwinnett County went from being one of the most um, um, non-diverse counties to now the third most diverse county in the nation. Um, and I think we're seeing similar things um, uh, in, the, in the legislature right now in terms of if you look at the last two election cycles in all that those running for office did. We talked about it on the show before, even um, running campaign ads in different languages. Um, it's that I see in you um, effect that I think is playing out. And I also think that people are electing people that not only symbolically represent them, um, but substantively in terms of those valence issues speak to them as well. And so I think we're seeing um, not just the diversification of our, elect, uh, our, our, of our legislature in terms of people, but we're also seeing the diversity of political interests um, that, that are speaking loudly throughout our state. You know, um, I've got to say, Tamara, you know, I, people know that I grew up in Chicago, uh, a city that has an enormously diverse population and where I was used to seeing people of many colors, many ethnic backgrounds uh, every day in the street. And, and so for somebody like me, I, there's a certain, I, I, it kind of fills me up that we are also becoming a, that kind of state. Yeah, and I'll be curious to see, especially that there's all these new caucuses that are forming, and I'm curious to see how they throw around their weight, how they impact the legislative process. Are we going to see a uh, priority shift? How are they going to band together in order to represent uh, various interests? So I'll be curious to see how that plays out. Yeah. Um, so, Mary Margaret, let's take up one of the I'd love to hear your ideas about some of the things that are of interest to you. But, but before we get to that, I, I'd like to talk about one issue that relates back to our conversation in the first part of the show about the Fulton County Special Grand Jury. Uh, Governor Kemp and Lieutenant Governor Jones have made it clear that they want to take on in some way violent crime in Georgia, and they are suggesting that uh, one of the problems that they fa that we face as a state is um, overly uh, permissive district uh, district attorneys across the state, liberals who are not pursuing criminals uh, the way that they uh, should, and and to some extent they can use the power of the purse uh, to influence what happens in local jurisdictions. Yes. Uh the, the messaging about liberal DAs is, is totally a political message, has no real, there's no there there. Uh, let me go back just for a minute to the diversity. 83 non-white members of the 236 General Assembly, House and Senate members, two are Republican. So the significance of the diversity and the significance of crime, who are the victims of crime? They're the non-white folks in Georgia who are the victims of crime. It is not a, to me, who worked in the court system, was a former judge and hung out at the jail doing warrants in the middle of the night. It's not about uh, a liberal DA. It's about who in Georgia is really the victims of these crimes. The the number of murders in full in the city of Atlanta are almost exclusively African American. Uh, there's a handful out of the 160 or so 
that are, are quote unquote buckhead white people. Um, and those cases are the ones that are, are so tragically before us every day. I think the governor tomorrow, Wednesday, makes some statements about his agenda um, and how he puts in policy some kind of uh, guardrails or whatever word he wants to use for the quote unquote liberal DAs, which don't exist in my view, um, will be interesting to see. What's realistic, what I don't think he will or Lieutenant Governor Jones will talk about is gun violence. What are the issues of gun violence that affect all of the victims uh, this week, the six o'clock news story is a six-year-old who took it, the gun out of his mother's purse, I think, and put it in his backpack, took it to school. And when he was irritated at the teacher, went to his backpack, pulled out the gun and shot the teacher. That's the image we have this week that the General Assembly begins. Will Governor Kemp mention the word gun violence tomorrow or will he stick to the political message of, quote unquote, liberal DAs. Eric, uh, when Mary Margaret talks about tomorrow, she's talking about the Eggs and Issues Breakfast, which is an annual event put on by the Georgia Chamber of Commerce and gives chance for the speaker, the governor, lieutenant governor, uh, to uh, uh, make remarks. It's, it's usually an event attended by a thousand or more people. Um, and Eric, one of the reasons it's got some importance, especially this year, is, as you well know, Governor Kemp was very... Uh, what's the word I want to use, reluctant to talk in great detail about the agenda he planned to pursue in his second term as uh, governor, assuming he won the election, which obviously he did. So uh, we need to start hearing him flesh out the agenda, Eric. Well, I mean, during the campaign, he did talk about um, gang violence and the problems with gangs and telegraphed that he was going to do something there. And I think that both he and the lieutenant governor have clearly said that dealing uh, with crime and public safety is gonna be a priority. So far be it from me to get ahead of the governor, lieutenant governor and the eggs and issues breakfast and what they're gonna roll out. But we do know that this is gonna be a priority. And you know we, we shouldn't politicize the issue. We should deal with the issue. And you know this is a complex, uh, issue that is affecting all of our communities in all parts of the state. And there's not a silver bullet. There's not one aspect that's going to solve all the problems. So this is going to take a comprehensive effort. And I think we need to wait and see what our leadership has to say tomorrow. And then then we can comment on it. And, and you know, that's the legislative process. And so, you know, people like, you know, uh, Representative Oliver has every uh, you know, she's in a position to try and influence and shape whatever uh, proposal is, is put forward. But the fact that they're talking about it and that it's a priority, I think, you know, we should we should applaud that. But Kendra, as Mary Margaret Oliver points out, uh, Bert Jones and Brian Kemp did put this in a political context by pointing the finger at so-called liberal district attorneys, permissive district attorneys. So the proof will, if there are willingness to work on this, I mean, the governor has made it clear for quite some time that gang violence is a top priority of his, as Eric points out. Um, but to be able to work across party lines on this issue is going to be crucial. And starting off with kind of a political message doesn't send the best signal to someone like Mary Margaret Oliver, Kendra. Absolutely. And, and I think here's the thing. Um, I, I don't disagree that gang violence should should uh, be a priority um, of, of the governor um, this, this term. But I also think poverty um, needs to be an equally issue, uh, issue, equally top issue of the governor. I think when we look at, you know, these apartment regulations and the fact that, you know, over 2000 violent crimes happen um, in these poverty stricken apartment complexes, I think uh, to the point that Eric made, this is a collective issue within our state. Now, are there nuances nuances, and are there um, more heightened issues going on in Fulton County? Absolutely. But on the 20th of December, there was a shooting at Perimeter Mall, which is OTP. Mm. So the violence is starting to spread outward. And I'm saying it's not just that we've got to get tough, quote unquote, on gangs and tough on criminals and 
tough perhaps on, on you know, mythical or non-mythical liberal DAs. We have to look comprehensively at the state of Georgia and the areas where we continue to fall behind, education being one of them, poverty being another one of those, and the, the political nature in which race issues are heightened um, and, and we stay away from valence issues. And so our city has to become safer. I live in the city. Um, let me say that. I, I live in the city. I pastor in the city. Our city must become safer, but it's not just gang violence that's making the city unsafe. Tamar, uh, I think I'm correct, although you'll tell me if I'm not, that despite um, talking about liberal DAs, to the best of my knowledge, Governor Kemp has never publicly criticized Fonnie Willis and her special grand jury. Am I right or wrong about that? I mean, he held his tongue until the the fighting between his lawyers and uh, Fulton prosecutors well, yeah. spilled out publicly. Yeah, he had been subpoenaed. Um, his staff had felt like um, prosecutors did not treat one of his aides, Cody Hall, well when he came in to testify that they crossed some lines in terms of some of the questions that were being asked. And so as a part of that, his attorneys um, were quite nasty to, to Fulton prosecutors about the way they were conducting their investigation, although the governor himself, um, we haven't heard that rhetoric come out of his mouth. Well, that's what I wondered. I mean, we haven't heard Kemp or, or for the, did did his lawyers call it a witch hunt? Did they use a Trump-like language in the way they talked about the grand jury? Yeah, I mean, they they more or less accused Fulton prosecutors of politically interfering in his race with uh, Stacey Abrams um, by trying to call gotcha. him in and and that sort of thing. So, okay, okay, um, Mary Margaret, let me give you the final word on this segment before we've got to get to a break. <laughs> Well, crime is very much on people's mind. It is very, very important issue to be discussed. This gang uh, trial that's going on is, an, is kind of an experiment in some ways. Can we manage a trial to determine criminal liability with a whole host of defendants in the courtroom. It's a it's a very aggressive. It's a very appropriate. The timing of that gang trial is 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 correct. You know, gangs are created in prisons more than they are any place else. So if we're going to talk about the dangerousness of gangs, which I think is a relevant conversation, we've got to talk about what's happening in our prison system, which is, I think, in my long political career, maybe more broken today than it's been at any time. I want to talk about crime. I mean, Eric is right. This is something we need to have a serious discussion about. Gangs, the creation of gangs in prison, the creation of gangs in uh, terrible apartment complexes that need to be managed in a way that we're not managing, all of that is a very good discussion to have. Saying that a DA in some county is liberal is, is not a serious discussion. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. We've got a few minutes left and a couple more issues I'd really love to hear this panel talk about. We'll do that after these messages. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Tamar Hallerman, uh, this past week, Governor Kemp made it clear he had no intention of working with the Democratic National Committee to move Georgia's primary up to the top of the presidential primary schedule in 2024. Uh, that's a big issue because really we know that uh, the uh, it's the Secretary of State who gets to set the calendar for primaries, and Raffensperger's unlikely to do anything Kemp doesn't like. Um, but it's interesting to me because it seems to me that Kemp would have an opportunity to be something of a kingmaker if the Republican primary is moved to the top of the calendar, too. And he certainly has expressed a desire to play a bigger role in national politics 
certainly based on the fact he's established a national pack at this point. At the same time, why does the governor have any incentive to help the Democrats? Um, I think, and Eric can correct me if I'm wrong, but the RNC already set, or, or sorry, the, the Republicans kind of already set their lineup for when primaries were going yes. down. And so that's already locked in. It certainly would have created some weird logistics if the Democrats went way before the Republicans did. Um, at the same time, Democrats were really hoping they had a compelling argument to make that even though it would be Democrats voting, it would still lead to bigger influence for Georgia nationally. But at the same time, kind of from a cold political perspective, I just think why gov the governor wouldn't want to help the Democrats with anything. Yeah, not to hey, let's also remember that the governor of Iowa, Kim Reynolds, is a Republican. The governor of New Hampshire, Chris Sununu, is a Republican. And I mean, why would Governor Kemp want to stick it to two of his Republican colleagues uh, that uh, that are governors? And to Tamara's point, I mean, he shouldn't just do it because the Democrats want him to do it. I mean, you know, the Republicans have their schedule set. Eric and uh, Tamar, you have really uh, beaten down an argument I've been making for a week or so now that it would be good for Kemp. And I think, Mary Margaret, they've just expressed clear reasons why there is no reason for Kemp to want to ch change the schedule <laughs> and try to get Republicans to agree to move the primary up here. Well, if if Governor Kemp is looking towards his position in the national stage of the Republican world, then clearly he's thinking more about the Iowa governor and the New Hampshire governor than than I am. Um, and I think that Kemp is very much Governor Kemp is very much looking at his position in the national Republican world. Kendra. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said. I, I think this has been a fun conversation to follow. You know, uh, will we'll, we move up the the, um, the primary for the Democrats? Um, I, I think Kemp is poised, right, to to in this particular uh, leadership cycle set precedent of who he'd be as a national leader. And so I think this is going to be one of many things um, where we see him either push back or have overwhelming support of a political issue. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see what this national PAC is going to do in about two years as it relates to the governor. All right. I surrender. I appreciate your arguments, and I now understand in a whole different way <laughs> the concerns that the governor might have. Mary Margaret, uh, before we leave today, um, I do want to take up uh, one uh, final issue for a couple of minutes. Uh, Senator Ossoff, uh, at the, as the uh, Georgia Democrats gathered to elect their leadership, Nakima Williams is uh, reelected as chair of the state party, uh, sent out a cautionary note. Uh, saying that except for Raphael Warnock, Democrats lost every statewide office on the ballot and change has to come. What does that mean to you, Mary Margaret? Uh, I believe he's right. It means to me that we're having some honest conversations um, within our crowd and with our voters. Um, I am very mindful that no woman Democrat has ever succeeded in a statewide race. And we keep talking in every race. I, there's a there's a little star by Kathy Cox's name that I'm going to explain that since she was appointed and didn't really have an opponent, that she's a little bit of, of an outlier of the theme I'm talking about. We keep talking about women being the most critical group of independent voters, and yet Georgia has not elected a statewide woman Democrat uh, ever in the history. And we've had fabulous candidates like Kathy Cox and uh, Stacey Abrams. So we have to have a conversation with ourselves. We have to incorporate the strengths of all our diversities. And we have to set out a path where we can be successful with all, more voters of Georgia. He was right to raise the issue. I appreciate it. Um. Eric, so uh, the other side of that coin is that uh, Republicans can't seem to win a United States Senate seat in this state at this point. And I wonder what you think about how it looks that the Republicans in the U.S. House, especially the right wing uh, of, the, of the party, is going to have more and more say in determining the direction of uh, the U.S. House and how that might down the road affect independent voters, particularly as they look to cast ballots, whether it's in a national race like for Senate or even in statewide races? 
Well, well, let me let me first just make a comment on Senator Ossoff's comment, because I do think, you know, again, going back to history, you know, when the Republicans were in the minority in a similar role to the Democrats back in the early 90s, uh, you know, the Democrats controlled everything, every state constitutional officer. And then in 1992, that's when you started seeing whether it was Bobby Baker on the PSC and then John Oxendine two years later as insurance commissioner and Linda Shrinko as. And so we started, uh, in addition to, you know, Senator Coverdale and a number of Republican congressmen, you started to see the Republican uh, wave from the federal down to the state. And so I think Senator Ossoff is, is onto something because I don't know that the last two U.S. Senate races are really a reflection uh, of the statewide electorate as much as they are in the case of the Senate runoff in two, in 2021. I think that was a result of Donald Trump and his obsession with the November election. Uh, I think there's probably some question about uh, the Senate uh, candidate in uh, this last race. And so I think that... Um, I think we need to, I think Senator Ossoff's right on that part. With regards to Washington and the, the new House majority, I think, you know, last week was was ugly, but I think that that's now behind, behind us. And I think that the Republican caucus is now unified. And you saw that yesterday by the passage of the rules. And, you know, there are right. issues I, I, that'll come up. I'm Go sorry, ahead. I didn't mean, I, I, I apologize because we're running out of time. But Kendra, I want to give you just a moment to reflect on what Eric said. I mean, there are many people who believe that the election of Kevin McCarthy as speaker and the chaos was just the beginning of the problems that they're going to have in the House. So it's going to be interesting to watch whether Eric is right or not. You got about 20 seconds to respond. <laughs> I think we're at the beginning of what's going to be um, a surprise um term I, I think that there's more chaos to come when you have popcorn and kids on the on the house of the floor i mean on the floor of the house we've we've got to watch this eric i'm optimistic but i think we're going to all have to hold on to the seat of our pants this year and i hope it doesn't trickle into other uh state legislatures I, rules vote eric, yesterday was five, an indication i think the rules vote yesterday was an indication that they're unified all right. I'm sorry. I would love to continue this conversation, but Natalie Menendal says we are totally out of time. Mary Margaret Oliver, Kendra King-Mammon, Eric Tannenblatt, Tamar Hellerman, thank you for a great show. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow at 9 and 2. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.